This is Women Who Build Empires, a podcast celebrating women entrepreneurs and thought leaders who are turning the tables on outdated old school belief systems and building business empires that align with who they are, how they work, and how they are leaving a lasting legacy. And I'm your host, Emmy Kirshner, serial entrepreneur, investor, and business consultant for ambitious women entrepreneurs who are boldly taking their business to the next level. In each episode, you're going to get to know the women who are unafraid to put it all on the line as they share the stories of how both success and failure have helped them become incredible CEOs. Hey, Empresses. To me, it just makes sense, like in my core, in my gut, that of course, women, when we're working together, are going to be the catalyst for change. It was really cool to interview my guest, Susan Sloan, who wrote an incredible and exceptionally meaty book called A Seat at the Table, Women, Diplomacy, and Lessons for the World, because she has done the research that proves that we most certainly are the game changers in this particular period in time. And one of the statistics that I loved um, finding and reading about was that research has shown that when women are involved in the peace process, an agreement is is 35% more likely to last at least 15 years. That's pretty significant. I had a very cool conversation with her. Susan is super smart. And one of the things that I love about her is that She set a goal in her early 20s to visit all seven continents by the age of 30, which she did. And we also talked about a whole host of things, including how and why being present really matters in your life and how it can be life-altering and changing. Uh, We talked about the challenge that women have faced in the last 15, 20 years and how it's changing in being able to raise a family and successfully build a business or build a career that's meaningful for them without penalties or feeling like they can't accomplish something. And then we also talked about why it's time to create a more flexible workspace and how the Gen Zers are really showing us how to do that. Susan, welcome to the podcast. Um, You and I were just chatting before I hit record. And I was sharing that I love your book, Seat at the Table. And I was perusing your website today um, in preparation for um, our time together. You have, I mean, an incredible background. You basically have been all over the world. And the thing that has fascinated me the most, in addition to your epic career, is that you hit your life goal at 30 of being on all seven continents. And the contrast of my life where I was changing diapers at that point at 30 (laughs) really stands out. I love how goal-oriented you are. So share with everybody as we dive into so many other topics, but why, why was that a life goal and how did you hit it at 30? Great question. Thank you, Emmy, for having me on your podcast. Yeah. I have always been an avid traveler. I started loving traveling when I was younger. I remember the first trip my family took overseas to Austria. And I remember seeing the Christmas markets and going on their metro, their subway, and hearing different languages. And I thought, wow, there's all these other places that are so different than the United States. I want to I want to see them. And so in college, I traveled quite a bit too. And my first trip over during college was to Australia and Fiji. And part of me thought in college, well, if I've already hit Australia, I wonder if I could see all seven continents. And then I started traveling more and more and saving money, working a ton of jobs to earn money to go travel. And I realized that I could do it. So I decided late in college that I would have a goal of seeing all seven continents by age 30. I thought that would give me enough time to do it. And right into the 30 mark, I, I really cut it close. But Antarctica was my last continent last place to go and it did not disappoint so every place was so different but I find with goal setting if it's something tangible and quantifiable and time-oriented 
I, I find that I really can't achieve it. And I believe that many leaders feel the same way too. Absolutely. And for me, it's just an amazing way to set up your life and to really be solid in the experiences. Um, I'm curious, was there something or anything that being in Antarctica um, gave you or a learning experience? Because that's not a place where most people are going. And they should. I wish people would. (laughs) Uh, It gave me the sense of expansiveness that I'm quite small in comparison to the entire world, the entire universe. There's nothing quite like it. I do hear from people that have been to Alaska and Alaska cruises that they feel a similar seeing glaciers and, you know, whale watching. But Antarctica, there's really nothing there. And besides glaciers, land like ice landmass, penguins and whales, and sometimes mm-hmm. a few birds. But it really is this totally different place, almost like being on a different planet. And it made me realize that we're part of something far greater than ourselves, which sometimes can feel lonely, but to me, it made me feel very connected. And the quietness, not hearing an airplane, not hearing really birds chirping, uh, no lawnmowers, you know, no sounds that we hear, traffic, day-to-day noise. And so the quietness, the serene quietness of being on a ship, and especially when it was with the anchor down and hearing quiet, literally, literally nothing. And it's a serene peace. And I, I hope many people, if, if you can find this serene peace and this quietness to take a moment and really embrace it. And that's what I would do on the ship. Sometimes I would go out to a balcony where no one would be maybe late at night and sit and listen to quietness and hear, and hear literally nothing. And it, it was um, almost transcendent. To, to feel that it definitely brought different ideas and thoughts to my mind. And it really changed the course of the direction my life was going at that time. And so I think that's something for many women and different leaders to think about. Many people meditate. I'm not a big meditator, but I do practice yoga, but having a moment of quietness, even a moment of quietness in your day to give you a chance, uh, give yourself a chance to think and to breathe and mm-hmm. to embrace that serenity, even for a moment. Yeah, it's always interesting for me and not quite the same because it's not silent, but living in a city, there's always noise. And I make a habit of getting out into nature, usually woods and hiking. So there's still birds chirping, but not having people noise feels very different and almost like weight is coming off of me. Uh, So I can only imagine having like no, no sounds. And, well, and nature really, sounds are beautiful too. I, I highly they agree. Are, they are, but yeah. like that's a totally different experience, right? To have yes. just complete silence. I, for me, would think that might be even a little bit uncomfortable until you kind of get used to there not being anything. Right. Well, it's also the the thoughts that are going on in your mind, the stories that you're telling yourself. That is also a sense of noise. Yeah. And being able to quiet that and and let them flow through, which is very meditative. Right. But, uh, and just being in, in the moment, being present. And it's something yeah. that I continue to try to practice in my daily life, uh, whether I'm working or uh, in my you know, personal capacity of mm-hmm. taking those moments and, and being embracing them and being there present and not letting my thoughts or even outside noise interrupt that, but being in the moment. You just said that being in Antarctica um, shifted really your career and your, your life um, vision. How did that, how did that change that? And where did you start moving into differently than what you had planned? It shifted a space where I was going personally in my life, uh, in my relationships and sometimes not being in certain relationships and also shifted what I wanted out of my life and where I wanted to go. So for instance, I knew that being in graduate school, finishing graduate school was important to me. And that was something I, I needed to focus on. And and knowing that my next chapter professionally and the work that I was currently doing, that it, it wouldn't be forever. And giving myself that peace of mind saying, you know what, this is not going to be forever. This is in this moment. And the next moment will be the next thing. But right now, this is where you are. This is embrace this moment. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I, I realized uh, that I was putting a lot of pressure on myself to 
achieve many things all at once, getting married, graduate school, traveling. There were a lot of goals that I had for myself, making a lot of money, uh, advancing professionally. And uh, I realized that I, I couldn't do everything all at once. And having a moment, that moment of clarity, having that silence, that the noise reduction from my daily life, and being in that moment of, of traveling here in Antarctica, such a special place, and finishing my my continent goal, allowed me the space to say, okay, what's the next direction I want to take in my life, and how am I going to get there? Mm-hmm. Uh, and many of the things that I was thinking about, the goals I was thinking about, didn't come to actualization until months or even years later, right? But having a space to to dream for just a moment that shifted everything. It sounds amazing, like a very profound experience and having been guilty of trying to do work on four or five goals at the same time, it, it doesn't work out well, at least for me. So it's challenging. Yeah. Right? One big yeah. thing. That's something uh, in the book I write about. Uh, one of the leaders that I interviewed, uh-huh. she heard from another leader, uh, Vera Victor Fraberga, that uh, you can't have it all. You can't have it all that you can have it at different times. So for instance, many women want to have it all and right. you can't have it all at the same time. And, and I believe that's true for men and women, but many ambitious people, many people with passions, goals, uh, we want everything to happen. We want it to happen all at once and be complete and keep going, but that's not the way life works. And that's not really the way goals work. And, right. and I've, and I, I continue to tell my, I preach and I'm listening to myself as I say this, because there's many goals that I have right now that I want to do, but I, to really accomplish these big goals, hearty goals, uh, whether it's professional, personal, they take time and focus. And that's something that I've learned so far in my short life, because I, I hopefully I'll continue to live a very long time. But the, the traveling goal was one goal. I had this other goal of graduate school. And then I had another goal of having a different career path. Writing a book was a goal. Mm-hmm. All these different things. And, and they really couldn't happen at the same time. Some of the times blended together when one was ending, one was beginning. But it really took the focus to do one goal at a time, a really big goal. And, and even in my personal life, finding a partner that I wanted to marry that was also a big goal of mine to have that partnership and to have that commitment. And whether I was public about it or not, or, or really was honest with myself, it was a goal. And achieving that goal and getting to the next stage of my life, because I did all these things, you know, into my 30s and early 30s. And I knew the next part I was like, okay, I know building a family is also important to me. And I think that's something that women, you can say now, right? And mm-hmm. say it fullheartedly, both with having a career, professional, and being having your personal life. It's okay to say these things and say them in conjunction with one another. Uh, I think, and I believe, 10 to 15 to 20 years ago, if you really wanted to focus on being a professional, you didn't discuss your personal life of finding partnership and building a family mm-hmm. in conjunction with having a career. And now oh, yeah. you've got to intertwine them and you and you have to be realistic about them. Yeah. I, I remember when I was pregnant with my first son, I was in a sales role and I was going out to client calls, extremely nauseous. Like I would basically puke before and after the, not to be too TMI, but that was the way that was what was happening, but before and after the pitch. And I remember telling my mom that like, I was like really struggling because I felt awful and, and throwing up just is terrible in, in general. And she's like, well, you can't let them know that you're pregnant because you'll get fired. And whether that was like her fear or the reality for me, there's definitely some truth there because there were other women that were pregnant right about the same time that I was. And nobody was talking about, about, you know, that until like we couldn't hide it anymore. And, and the, the thought process was that, you know, we weren't going to come back and I chose not to, but that was something that I had made a decision about long before I actually got pregnant. It wasn't, you know, that was part of the plan, but most of my friends were going back to work. And that's a, it's a huge pressure for women. Yeah. Uh, 
one leader that I interviewed in the book mentioned that uh, she wanted to get into the political realm in Washington, D.C., and she had just had her baby, is not even like four months old, and so she was still nursing, and she was very concerned going to these meetings. She wore black turtlenecks because she, and she was afraid her breast milk would leak, and the things that she did in order to get into that world and get into the current presidential administration uh, while having a very young child under six months old, uh, trust me, were far different than if a man were in the same position having a six-month-year-old, you know, less than a six-month-year-old baby. So the women, the things that women do uh, professionally while building a family and building a career, they're they're far different. And mm-hmm. also the stigma is changing right now that many women, if you have the opportunity to take some time off uh, to be with your children as you're raising them, and not have to work, which many women do not have that option. Many women have to play that dual role. But right now, even on LinkedIn, there's opportunities to say that what you've been doing with that time that you weren't in the workforce, because I'll tell you what, whether you're in the regular workforce of right. you know, going to an office or being on Zoom calls, whatever it is, if you're raising a family, I tell everyone, you are the CEO, you are the COO, you are the CFO, you are everything in between. Oh, yeah. And really, you're running an organization. Uh, the, the things that and time management skills and and all the different things that you're doing uh, are really quite profound. And taking those skills and even on LinkedIn, showing what those skill sets are, because you're you're still an attractable candidate to, to work and to you're basically running a household and, and running a whole world that exists. Absolutely. I mean, I, in the short time that I was doing the stay at home mom thing, I mean, I ran a book club, I ran a babysitting club, I ran events and managed the whole house Was a financial advisor. Like there's so many transferable skills, um, whether you're taking time off or you're just doing a different position or in a different position that you're using to kind of leapfrog into something else. But what I'm really curious about is you've interviewed all these amazing women who have had incredible and unusual careers. How did they find or make, I guess, the ability to have a personal life and um, and the careers that they've had in diplomacy, in in places and at levels where there aren't a lot of women. Great question. Uh, a few stories call to me right now because many of the women they mention how partnership played a role or hasn't played a role in their life. And uh, I'm going back to interviewing the first woman ambassador uh, to serve for Mexico here in the United States, and. Her and her husband were, are both diplomats and have both traveled the world together and apart and have both been posted together and apart. And in many times what they did was request to be posted in Europe at the same time, but they'd be living in different countries. And then they would have these amazing weekend or four-day getaways, meeting in another country and seeing one another. And the ambassador said it was you know, the best of both worlds, mm-hmm. but they it took turns in their leadership capacity. So even when she was posted in Washington, D.C., one of the premier posts for an ambassador. Her husband came with her, but he didn't come uh, in a diplomatic uh, form. He wasn't working at the time, and he took a break and pursued some other goals that he wanted to pursue. Uh, On the flip side, other diplomats said that it was challenging for them to uh, find a partner, and a few of the leaders I interviewed are still single and they don't have partnership and they date in different countries where they are, but uh, they weren't able to find a partner to go with them and to be with them. So it's uh, it, it depends, right? It depends how diplomats find one another. But I will say that we've, especially in the United States, come a far away in the diplomatic service because there were a lot of barriers to women being in diplomacy. And mm-hmm. one of them was you couldn't marry another diplomat. And not right. only that, but a really bad rule that existed was that you couldn't marry at all. If you married, you had to leave being a diplomat, being in the diplomatic service. So now those rules don't exist anymore. But if you imagine that in the workplace, when you're traveling and you're surrounded by other diplomats, surrounded by colleagues, and none of them are viable options, how do you get married, right? 
Mm-hmm. So this, the international affairs has really changed with different rules that are now no longer. Uh, but we're we're seeing how women right now in international affairs, how are they given flexibility to be in these levels of leadership, travel, and I don't mean for necessarily for fun, but travel for their work and, and be in different postings and have a family. And right now, Many leaders are seeing that it can be done, but there depends the country they're coming from if the country gives them flexibility. And other countries do better than others. I will say the Nordic and Scandinavian countries do far more for gender equity in living and working abroad and even in their own countries of, of the access to resources and support they give women and families. That does not surprise me. The little bit I know about some of the Nordic countries and and how they really what their core values are as as a country, but as a culture, it seems to be more diverse and just more equitable in general. Now, these are smaller countries, too. So something to note is that uh, if you're looking at Finland, Sweden, Iceland, who have great equity when we think about gender, uh, that both men and women are taking time off when children are born into the family. They're given uh, financial support from the government. They don't lose their jobs. They can take you know anywhere between six months to a year off to raise their children. And both men and women are taking that time. So that creates equity in the workforce because if you know both men and women are gonna be out of a job for a certain amount of time, there's no uh, competition between the sexes really. Right. Uh, at the same time, they're all coming from pretty homogeneous cultures and smaller countries than the United States or, you know, India or China, right? Right. Uh, when you think about the land mass and also population size. And so in the United States, when we think about how to give flexibility, if you want to have a family and not, and not just even have children. And something I've been thinking about is when we talk about equity, with uh, family leave policies, sometimes it's, you don't have children, but you need to take care of aging parents, or you have a sibling that's ailing, or you have something going on with a a friend group, or you're even your dog or your cat gets sick. Sometimes you need to take leave. So it has nothing to do necessarily with children, but creating the, the equity of that we all need time for our personal lives. And sometimes that comes into family leave. How do we build that into our society? And so to me, this is not a, it's a nonpartisan issue. It's not uh, conservative. It's not liberal. It's an everyone thing, because at some point, everyone needs to take care of someone, no matter who that someone is. And are we giving a support system to do that? Yeah. And I think that's what's most important is regardless of kids, older parents, a pet, a friend, sister, like whatever and whoever it is. As humans, we should be creating these support systems so that we can all move through the challenges and the difficulties of life together instead of just being cast out into this almost like an individual experience. Because if we live long enough, we're all going to have some sort of challenge and difficulty. A hundred percent. And it's about the collective. It's something I've been thinking about quite a bit lately that we, especially in the United States, live in a more individual society. What's good for me living Mm -hmm. in my own place? And it's very insular and quite lonely. And something that we've all seen, especially during the pandemic, is that humans, we are creatures that need to engage. We are creatures that need to be around other people. And we need that for our mental health. We need that for our community. And Mm -hmm. so really, it's more of a collective feeling that we need to build. Uh, And whether it's that's in the the businesses that we run, how do we have that collective feeling or in our personal lives? Because many of us are working remotely from different places. Right now, I'm I'm working remotely. I'm in my home. And I, I work by myself unless I get on a Zoom call or a phone call or email. But I'm by myself with my dog every day. So how do I even create that community? And so it's being very intentional about the other things I do outside of work in order to have engagement with humans. And when I don't do that, 
I notice that I get very, very down. And that's something that many entrepreneurs may feel mm-hmm. when they start a business and start a company that they're alone at first. And, yeah. And how to not have that feeling of being alone because when we are engaged, when we do get that energy from people and that support from other people, we're able to do far more. And so it's, it's realizing to be very intentional about that. Yeah, I completely agree with that. One of the things that I hear time and time again from my clients um, when we come together for our quarterly CEO retreat weekends, regardless of how many people they have working for them, it's the same comment every time. I'm so glad we're here together because I still feel like I'm working in a silo. And you know, they have support in place, but particularly when it comes to entrepreneurs, I feel like sometimes you're working so outside of the normal box to be able to grow your business and make a change in a certain way that you do feel alone. And, right. um, and it is hard to connect sometimes with other people because you're doing your thing and you're solely focused on, on that and whatever else is going on directly in your life. Yeah, I, I agree. The in-person events, that's something that right now everyone is is building more and more and mm-hmm. realizing like, hey, we gotta we gotta go back to being in person in different ways. But then it's also this juxtaposition right now, especially for women, because being able to work from home gives flexibility in different ways, right? So how do we have this hybrid model of work being at home and then also being with people and having and having the best of both worlds? Because it can't be all or nothing, right? right? And so right now in the workforce and, and something that many diplomats were facing uh, during the pandemic is diplomacy is really done best in person, right? So the, the Zoom calls weren't cutting it, but it also allowed many diplomats who are constantly on the go uh, to take a moment and, and do things in their personal lives that they really weren't able to do before. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's a collective feeling, no matter what sector that you work in. And so how do we do do both and how do we do it well? And so this hybrid model that we're now just starting to look at and figure out, which I think will take a few years to figure out, will be really fascinating because we now see some large corporations saying, hey, we're done with being in the office. We're closing down our headquarters. Everyone's working remotely. And then on the flip side, you're seeing other organizations saying, no, okay, this is the date. Everyone's got to be in person from here on out. And so that doesn't work either of those don't doesn't necessarily yeah. work and so this hybrid model of having you know a few days in the office a few days that you can work from home and doing both and and ebbing and flowing is allows for flexibility especially for women and i believe that when you're creating your own organization your own company your own business mm-hmm what kind of organization do you want to work in or would you have wanted to work in before you were the leader and how do you create that culture and and build it upon that and see what you're also the workforce wants so even whether you have one employee or 500 employees uh, building a company and a workforce that really gives the flexibility of what people need and we can learn something. I know, and maybe I mentioned this earlier before we got uh, the podcast started, that we can learn from our younger generation. So Gen Z, something that they're really looking at is uh, flexibility and that working to work and make a lot of money is not necessarily the top of mind to them, but really having that flexibility in how they live their life and their personal life mm-hmm. is far more important than any kind of money they make. And that's something that older generations, more seasoned generations can really look at and say, okay, this is what Gen Z wants, but hey, this probably would also be good for us too. Yeah, because the flip side of that and what I see and, and hear is, I refer to it as a culture of overwhelm where people feel burned out and exhausted and stressed all the time. And I think that's where Gen, the Gen Zers really have a great opportunity to teach us because they are looking for better flu- fluidity, um, better flow, better balance. And as much as I love abundance and wealth and making money, there's more to life than just that. So how do you have a complete life? And I know that'll be different for everybody. Um, 
but I, I am looking forward to kind of seeing that and that transition because my guess is they're going to be healthier, less stressed and happier, more fulfilled. Right. Well, in something about money that I've been thinking about, especially from writing the book, interviewing many of these leaders, uh, some came from families that probably were well off and they were in diplomacy because their families had political connections and already right. leaders and they aspired to also be leaders. But many of the women came from very humble beginnings. Uh, the ambassador from Sweden, uh, her family, they had a shoe store and they were like cobblers and shoemakers in Sweden. And they didn't know, you know, what diplomacy was. They weren't in international affairs. Uh, another ambassador I interviewed uh, read uh, Nancy Drew novels and loved this idea of a woman protagonist and, and getting to the table that way. Yeah. And many of the women I interviewed and the leaders where they are now, uh, they, they came from humble beginnings and it was the passion for international affairs, for making a change in the world. They liked being with people, they loved traveling. And that's what got them into foreign affairs and being diplomats. But diplomacy, when you're a government employee, you really don't make that much money, right? It's not a very lucrative income. The, the whole sex part of being a diplomat is traveling and living in different places all around the world and working on issues that impact many people. Mm -hmm. And many of the diplomats and the leaders I interviewed, the stories that I tell and the research that's in the book shows that these leaders impacted many things that we see in our daily lives and whether we know it or not. Something that uh, I want to iterate, though, is that having this passion, something that drives them forward, uh, really was, it's like the catalyst that propels them. Mm -hmm. And I find that when, even in my own life, when I do something for money, for this idea, okay, I'm going to make a lot of money doing this, it never really turns out, right? Yeah. <laughs> it never really, like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to make a lot of money doing this. No, the things that really turn out is, oh, wow, I have this idea, I have this passion, I have this goal. This is what I want to do. The money comes along with it. And I, I find that if you find something that you're passionate about and drive an idea forward, it's far more fruitful. And you can hear my dog barking in the back right now. She's very passionate about this idea too. She is. She is. And as I've said before on the podcast, this is life and dogs bark. So it's all good. And and yes, like as much as the same thing, as much as I love money, what I really enjoy is being able to help people that I get to make money doing the thing that I love is just a bonus. If you can if you can find those two things, doing something you love and making money doing it. Yeah. It's great. And, and also not being scared to, to change paths and to shift uh, when you're not enjoying what you're doing and saying, trying things and they may not work out. And that's something that uh, often young professionals and entrepreneurs, they know full heartedly that you're going to try things and they're not going to work out always, right? They're not right. always going to be the bang right from the start. Right. And it's okay to say, okay, the blood can work what's next? Let's do something else mm -hmm. and to shift gears. Uh, and it's something that I'm, I'm constantly trying to practice that I come up with ideas of, of certain things all the time, grand <laughs> ideas. And, I'm, and for a few days, I'm really focused on this idea. And I'm, I'm going to drive this idea forward, whether it's a different book idea or something in my career or per, like personally or gardening, whatever it is, I'm going to drive this idea forward. This is a great idea. And then a few days later, I'm like, I don't know if that's actually the idea I really want to spend all this time working on. And it's okay to shift gears. Uh, many of us now uh, in this day and age, we're not staying in jobs or fields that are uh, they're there for like 20 years. It's not a generation anymore. So no. we're, we're shifting our focus constantly. And every so often, I think it's okay to have a lot of ideas, right? And then to find one that really works. But at some point, you do have to focus on one. Uh, and so we have this, uh, everyone knows, is the paradox of choice, right? right? You go into the grocery store, you go down the cereal aisle, there are more cereal than Lord knows, right? So you have all these choices, but that's in our daily life, right? Uh, what news articles you read, uh, what e-blasts that you get, uh, what podcasts you listen to, what shows you watch, uh, how you spend your time. 
and we're inundated with so much information every day. How do we cut that clutter and how do we cut that noise so we can focus on something? Mm -hmm. Every day, I will say it's a challenge and opportunity for me, even for me. And sometimes I tell myself, okay, you can't do five things while you're on a walk with your dog. Right now, you're just going to walk the dog. It's going to spend 10 to 15 minutes walking the dog. You're not going to listen to music or a podcast. You're not going to respond to an email. You're not going to listen to an op- Like, you're not going to take a work call. You're just going to be here for 10 to 15 minutes. What's the, you know, what's the worst that can happen? Yeah. And I always feel better when I do it, right? But constantly, I'm like, oh, I'm on a walk. So I'll take a call. I'll do this. And, uh, and you know what? Uh, when the walk's over, I realized I wasn't even on the walk. I'm like, where did that walk go? You so- had- yeah, <laughs> I'm laughing because I had to stop myself. Like I, in general, try not to do calls in the car and I try not to listen to podcasts or whatever if I go out for a walk. Um, sometimes I do because I'm like in the middle of a cool podcast and I want to finish it, but yeah, you're not as present and and I don't feel relaxed. Right. Like I come back and I'm like, oh, all right. Not only did I miss the walk and anything that was like actually outside, but I don't feel chilled out now. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I, I find that it's uh, we're constantly doing this multitasking and uh, something that I, I took away from being with all these leaders, especially when I interviewed for them book, the book, each one of them was so present with me when I sat down with them and the majority I met with in person. When I sat down with them, they were there. They did not have a laptop open up, a phone. They were so present. And something that I've really taken away from diplomacy in general, diplomats typically, when they are engaging with the public or having one-on-one meetings, it's the most present moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're not doing other things. And it's very purposeful. And there's a lot of intent behind it. And it's something that I've, I've carried with me that intent and intentionality uh, in my daily life. And and even as I work, that I know I, when we, when we spoke, I mean, I think uh, a few weeks ago about this, about being in, in the flow zone. Mm-hmm. When, you're, when you're working on something and you're enjoying it and you don't even realize how much time has passed and you're, you're flowing, right? And I, I find that I do that when I have time to focus. And most yeah. people are like, I don't have time to focus. Well, it's, it's creating that time It's saying, hey, for 30 minutes, I'm going to turn off all these notifications. And this is the thing I'm going to work on. And whatever it looks like at the end of 30 minutes, that was success because that's what I did for those 30 minutes. Right. So it doesn't matter if it took you 30 minutes to craft that email. That was success because that's what you did in that 30 minutes without di- distraction. And I, I realized that even in my own time that I'm working and, and right now when I advise organizations and governments, and I'm working on something for them. I have to focus on that one piece at a time so I really can give it my full attention and, and not respond to things on different chats and emails and texts, and, but really take that time and moment because that, that's when I'm producing my best quality work. Yeah, I recommend the same thing to my clients and it's what I try to practice as well. Some days go better than other, but- Some days go better than others. Yeah, but it's, it is, I get so much more done and I feel- so much better when I'm not responding to all the noise and 99.9% of the noise is not urgent. It usually isn't. It usually isn't. Right? And I, I like to tell people, unless you are a doctor working in the ER, yeah. it's not life or death. It's not. It's not. I am curious. I want to shift gears a little bit with all of the women that you interviewed in the book, because there's a lot. I mean, you, you spent quite a bit of time in research with this. How do you feel women are contributing to change and doing diplomacy, but just business in general, different or differently? I find that women, especially in leadership roles, are, are doing it very differently. And men are learning from women now. I find that many women yeah. try to employ these skill sets that women have. And I write about this in the book of uh, one, they're employing different listening skills than than other types of, I'd say, male leaders. Uh, they are using listening skills in a different way than most people think, uh, not just in a team meeting and listening and everything, but uh, when they're setting a trajectory for a path. And I, I'm taking this idea from the ambassador of Finland, 
her skill set, she said, was listening Mm -hmm. and that she would bring the best minds around her from her team and give the challenge, give the question. Everyone would discuss it. And, And then the solution that they came up with was usually far better than anything that she could have come up with herself. And versus other leaders, especially other leaders she had worked for, men leaders, who would come and say, this is my idea. What is this is the direction? What do you think about it? And that doesn't really give an opportunity for other team members to say, well, they're not going to go against the leader and be like, that's ah, a horrible idea, boss. Right. So that's something that I found that many women use is this listening idea. And also something that many of the leaders used was this idea of embracing their own unique voice. And what I'll say by that is uh, one woman that I interviewed, uh, the Honorable Mary Beth Long, who she was the first assistant secretary of defense. So uh, equivalent of a four star general in the Pentagon, first woman to hold that role. Uh, she started her career in the CIA and her uh, cover was being a diplomat with the State Department. And her mentor at that time, there weren't many women in the field where she was working. And her mentor was a man and he was a very, uh, she said, machismo, a man with a lot of machismo and very male oriented. And he told her to embrace her unique voice. The fact that she was a woman, use it. You know, you can walk into a room and people want to talk to you, use it, create your contacts that way. You know, you're not someone who looks like all everybody else. You're a woman. So use that. And so she did, and she got meetings, especially working as a CIA agent, that other men weren't able to get because she was a woman and she was different. She wasn't another man in a suit. And I I even heard that from other ambassadors, Ambassador Sweden, I'll mention her again. Mm -hmm. She was posted uh, in Paris. I think there were two to three or four other women ambassadors at that time. Everyone else was a man. And so at big diplomatic events where all the ambassadors are invited, the prime minister and the leadership of the country, they would call on her and the other women because they stood out in the sea of gray suits and gray hair. Mm-hmm. They, they stood out. And so they used it. They were able to strike first with their ideas and strike first with, you know, the opportunities to engage the leadership of the country. And so being different is a great thing. And, and women have, especially the leaders I interviewed, all of them used it in different ways and embracing what was unique to them. So some leaders I interviewed uh, are more soft-spoken. Other uh, leaders I interviewed were, uh, I'd say, more gregarious and outgoing. And each of them were different. They didn't have the same qualities of, you know, I'd say some were quiet and some were outgoing. Like those are different qualities. Those mm-hmm. are two totally different types of leaders, but yet they're both leaders. And so I, I say that with with all the women I interviewed that, the, the qualities saying, these are my qualities. I'm not going to try to be somebody else. I'm not going to try to be a man. So I thought that was very fascinating uh, coming away from that because uh, oftentimes people, especially entrepreneurs, as they're building businesses, they're like, oh, I want to emulate this kind of leadership or I, I want to be like this leader. I want to be like this leader of this country, this company. You know, I want to be like Sarah Blakely who, you know, founded Spanx. I, I want to be like that. But the reality is you are you. So be you have to be you. You have to build your empire being you. You can't be somebody else. It's already taken. And I found that all the leaders I interviewed who are successful in their own right, they were each unique and they embraced their unique voice. And that's what made them different. I'm just taking it all in. <laughs> Because I agree with you so much. And I'm thinking back to kind of the 80s and yeah, the 80s and even 90s of some of the women leaders I I had access to um, who were at higher level, you know, senior level leadership roles. And they were trying to be men because that was the only way they could get to the next level was to emulate masculine leadership skills. And most of them, and probably not all, but a lot of them years later ended up having health issues i think be- partly because of that they weren't really embodying their unique selves and i'm curious you know 
particularly post-pandemic, as we're seeing a lot of senior level women exit or pull back from their careers, how can we change that and really have women take another step into owning their voice? We need women in these senior roles. We need women in all levels of leadership. And right now, the statistics are saying that women are are stepping back from these senior level roles because the expectations and the non-flexibility of organizations are, are essentially making them like, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. It's not worth the stress level. It's not worth the anxiety. It's not worth not being with my family or you know, personal capacity of my other world. And it's not worth it. It's not worth it being a senior level role. So that leads me to believe that the flexibility piece is crucial in how we're building a workforce, how we build leadership within an organization, mm-hmm. a company, a government, all of it. And are we actually giving ourselves, uh, are we humanizing it? Because we're not robots, right? We, right? we are humans and we can't work 24-7. So are we allowing for that flexibility? And and look, organizations and companies and leadership, they're going to need to try things and they may not work. And they're going to need to go back to the drawing board and try it again. But the many organizations, right, it's it's all about making the money. You got to have the profit and revenue. That's the way it is, right? And they, they believe that uh, working the workforce really hard will get them that. But in the reality of it is that that's not the way to get the profits, right? That's not the way to drive right money and drive income so i uh, my partner said this uh to a few folks a few weeks ago and i overheard him he, he for his organization he was saying that you know if you have happy staff members happy team members they create a sense of like happy customers and happy customers buy more things right it's a cycle we yeah. all know that but when you think about the senior level leadership are they embodying that? Are they actually doing it too? Because it can't just be a talking piece. And so to really keep the the, the women here in senior level roles, are they happy being in those roles? And if they're not, which obviously it's just they're showing that they're not, how do we make them happy? How do we make them want to stay? Mm. And it may be different depending upon the organization and the company. But it, I guarantee you this, when women feel supported, and feel that they could do the work well and have their own personal life, they do stay. And the compensation has to be there. It can't just be to do the work to do it, right? Uh, You also have to have that compensation piece and compensate them for their time and the work that they're doing. It has to be all those things. Uh, But I believe it's, it's very individual to the organization and the company. But I think from the pandemic of many people having a very stressful time uh, being home uh, secluded, but also the uncertainty of what's going on in the world. And also many people, if they do have kids, they were homeschooling their kids. I mean, oh gosh, I, I, can't. I commend I can't <laughs> all even imagine. the families out there. Yeah, I can't imagine. Uh, but they had all this stress and now people are going back into the workforce full force. And it's like this, this major crisis happened in the world and we're supposed to like say, oh, okay, that's done. On to the next thing. Get back to senior level leadership. And that's not the way it works because the stress of what we just went through is still within us. And we need to have some compassion and a little bit of empathy here to say to our leadership, okay, we know that you're not going to work the way you used to work. What is What does working look like now? How do we build something that you want to stay in now? And then actually going through with the things that people want. Because if you ask, you do a survey, oh, it's all good and well, but if you don't use the data, what was the point? Exactly. And I, I don't think businesses and companies, even if they survey, use the data well. Right. Yeah, we did the thing. Okay, check box. <laughs> you got to use it and, yeah. and you got to have that feedback. And then I also say with senior level women leaving, Finding out why they're leaving, what do they really want? And and then building that into your culture and building into a strong HR system saying, okay, this is how we're going to have women in these roles and how we're going to keep them and how we're really going to engage them. 
And you can say that through a lens of gender, saying women. You can say that through a lens of DEIA, of diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility. So you can look through it through multiple lenses. But if we want to have a productive workforce and have senior leaders who think differently and bring different ideas and solutions to the table, then we have to have gender equity. We have to have diversity of thought. And that's really what's going to drive us and propel us forward, not only as an organization, but as a society as a Mm -hmm. whole. Well, And I think all of those things are what create innovation and solve problems more effectively, faster, more fluidly. A hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent. You had something you said in the book too, and I don't remember the exact numbers, but when women broker peace deals, the peace is will generally stay for like 15 years. It's way longer than when guys do it. Um, can you share that and, and what the actual real number is? Yes, no, you said it right. right. Uh, a peace agreement is more likely to last 15 years or longer when women are at the decision-making table. And it's something that when we look at conflict all around the world, uh, one who starts the conflict many times, it's not women. Yeah. Uh, and two, when conflict ends, God willing, when conflict does end and wars end, who is at that negotiating table to make sure that all the voices are heard and all the communities are heard? So for instance, when you don't have a language and a peace agreement that deal with women or children, it's usually because women weren't at the decision and negotiating table. And the the biggest populations of people that are affected by war and conflict are women and children. Mm-hmm. So women have to be that voice at the table to, to talk about how communities are affected and the ways in which to resolve conflict. And when we look at uh, peace agreements that have been very successful, and right now there, there was an anniversary in Ireland uh, for the peace agreements and negotiations that happened uh, a few decades ago, women drove that. Women drove those negotiations. And that's why Ireland's been in a, a place of, of peace for the past couple of decades. And uh, we can see it that women being involved in these negotiations, whether they're at the UN level, whether they're at the country level, when you don't have women at the table, things are not good. Let's look at Afghanistan right now, where there's zero women in leadership. Women have lost the ability to go to school. Young girls can't go to school anymore. Uh, women cannot leave their house without a male escort. We are we are back to a few decades where we were before with Afghanistan. And this is what happens when you don't have a woman in leadership. Let's look at Iran. Zero women in leadership. Uh, and right now the protests that are going on with Iranian women, the Iranian people revolutionizing, saying, hey, this is not what we want. And, and using covering their hair with the hijab as a symbol uh, saying that, no, you're not going to control us. You can't control people uh, who, who want to live their life in a certain way. And this, this uh, fighting that's going on there internally uh, says that, hey, women matter and women have a voice and how are we going to use it? And so when you look at countries uh, of how women are treated, they're like a canary in the gold mines. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is, they are the ones to say first, like, hey, something's wrong. If the women are not treated well in a country, I guarantee you this, there will usually will be an ending of democracy of some sort, and there will be some kind of, um, I won't say dictatorship, but a ruling party, when they don't treat women well, things do not go well in the country. And economically, a country usually won't do well either. So you have to have women at the table in multiple levels, whether it's in peace negotiations, economics, leadership, all of it. Mm-hmm. And when you do have women at the table, countries, businesses, everyone fares better. Yeah, which to me makes complete sense because we tend to be more collaborative. I'm curious, I can't believe how, time, how quickly the time has flown by and we're going to have to wrap up. But what advice would you have for women who are thinking about potentially becoming diplomats or or being in um, a space of diplomacy, but also looking at, after listening to everything that you've had to say, looking at their own lives and saying, how can I lead differently um, and find my own voice in that leadership? One, we definitely need more women diplomats. We definitely need more women in international affairs. So we have, I would say less war, but 
more ideas coming from a different lens on how to solve problems and how to work together. Because yes, women are more collaborative, but also women think differently than men. Everyone thinks differently. So you have to have that diversity of thought at the table. So if you're interested in diplomacy and international affairs, yes, there are ways to go into it and there are ways to get involved. If you want to connect with me on LinkedIn, I'm happy to share a few ways of, of how to get into diplomacy. And there's different levels of diplomacy and ways to get into the government that uh, people don't think about whether you're in civil, it's called civil society, if you're a civil service leader, you're a foreign service officer, or if you contract with the government and advise the government. So there's different ways to get into diplomacy. That's not one track. That's number one. Right. Number two, also, if you donate a lot of money to a political party, usually you become a diplomat in different ways and become ambassador. <laughs> but <laughs> that's a different story. Right. Uh, when we look at the diplomacy in everyone's own hometown and where you are, uh, thinking about if you're on the school board, if you uh, are on, you know, are communicating with your city council person, are you involved in your local government of, of how it builds your and shapes your community? That's also a form of diplomacy when you think about it, mm-hmm. and and working with your own community because right now we are all living in some kind of community. Uh, whether we are involved and engaged with community or not, that's up to you. However, how you're engaging with the community is a form of diplomacy and and what you decide to build where you are. Because it's not always everything's over there, everything's overseas or abroad. It's also about what you do in your own home. And so I, I constantly see diplomats when they go back to their home country and what they do in their own home country to work in diplomacy within their own mm-hmm. community, that's also diplomacy. So there, there's both. Uh, and there was a second part of your question that you asked, and I forgot what the second part of your question was. It was similar for those people, for those women who are listening, who are looking at their existing life, business, career, wherever they're at, how can they start to own their voices um, a little bit more. What's what's a step that they could take? Say no to things that don't serve you and say yes to things that do. It's something that each of us, I'm sure we all try to practice quite frequently, but to to have your own voice and say, this is me and this is what I'm doing. And this is what, these are my skill sets and my positive attributes and I'm going to embrace them and I'm going to use them. And then saying no to those things that, you know what? that don't really serve you. If you're not good at X, Y, or Z, don't try to be X, Y, or Z. Uh, you be you and do the things that you're passionate about and also that you're good at and, and keep on working on those and embracing those. It's mm-hmm. something that I think about with strengths and weaknesses. I have many weaknesses. Why try to work on my weaknesses all the time? They are weaknesses for a reason. I mean, I can work on like my punctuality and my time management. Okay, <laughs> like, let's do that. However. <laughs> you know what? I'm not a great painter. Why would I try to go be an artist and create a painting for my house? That's just right. it. like, no matter what I do, I'm not going to be a great painter. So right. I'm not going to do that. Right. But I, I can write and I'm a good writer. I'm going to do that. I'm going to embrace that. And I'm going to use that communication uh, skill instead. And that's my form of art. So what I, what I say to, to all the leaders listening and all the women, you're running your own organizations, big or small, embrace your unique voice and what it means to you and who you are and say no to the things that drain your energy, that don't bring you joy and that you're not good at. Get rid of those things. Why spend time on those things? And oftentimes it's not until you do the thing that you don't want to do that you realize you don't want to do it. So it's also yeah. okay to try things out and be in the middle of them and say to yourself, you know what, this this was not how I really wanted to spend a few hours. Okay, lesson learned. I don't need to do that again. So try things. And if they don't serve you, don't do them. The opportunity of saying no also is using your unique voice. Thank you so much. And interesting you say that because last night I just recommitted to do the things that work for me. And to not let other people's input sway that. Um, yes. Yeah. And not that like there's this huge gap for me. It was more that like, oh, there were a couple of things that popped up in the last couple of weeks that I was like, oh, 
note to self, stay committed to me. Yes. But Susan, I, I want to thank you so much and share with everybody where they can get your book, Seat at the Table. Thanks for having me, Emmy. You can find my book uh, online at Amazon, at local bookstores. You can ask for it. It's called A Seat at the Table, Women, Diplomacy, and Lessons for the World. And you can find me on my website, susansloan.com. And I have a newsletter I send out periodically stuff about women and leadership podcasts, which will be featured as well. And to it. different information about how to bring diversity of thought to the table. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on LinkedIn. But if you go to my website, you can find me in all those places. Awesome. And we will have a link to the book and your website and all the socials in the show notes. So everybody should go and check out Susan's book. Fantastic. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Thank you for being here. It's my hope that you find at least one nugget of value in each episode of Women Who Build Empires. And if that's true, please follow and share Women Who Build Empires with your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Your support is what will help this podcast be found by more women just like you. 